In Ezekiel 8, God introduced a massive vision to show Ezekiel what was happening in Jerusalem spiritually. Idolatry in the temple. We'll tell you today what the consequences for that will be. Also, what happens to your spirit whenever you get saved? Does the mark in Ezekiel 9 have anything to do with the mark of the beast in Revelation? And speaking of the mark of the beast, why does the Antichrist decide to mark his followers in the end times? You'll find all that out today on the Cross References Podcast. Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and someone who cares about the details, so you might want to look at the title of this lesson today and make sure you read it right the first time. You might have thought you did, or maybe you thought that I made a typo, But no, I was 100% intentional about how I titled this episode. Let's take a little history detour. In Warsaw, Poland in 1939, there was a Jewish family with the last name Frankiel, and they were one of the families taken by the Germans and marched off to a concentration camp during that time. And not just any concentration camp, they were taken to Auschwitz. This family had seven sons, and one of them named Jacob, he remembers entering the camp and seeing smoke coming from the chimneys. Jacob says, My brother Kaim and I were lined up with the kids and old people. I asked a prisoner what was going to happen to us. He pointed to the chimneys. Tomorrow, the smoke will be from you, he said. He said that if we could get a number tattooed on our arms, we'd be put to work instead of being killed. Jacob continued, We sneaked into the latrine, then escaped through the back door, and lined up with the men getting tattoos. Now, perhaps you've seen pictures of the Jewish people who were tattooed while held captive in concentration camps. The few survivors of those camps carried those marks on their bodies for the rest of their lives, and it must have had a tremendous psychological impact on someone who was wearing it, to know that this image meant that you were considered property of the Nazis. It's kind of like how we brand cattle. It meant that you belonged to the person who branded you, and that's part of what the mark meant. It was used for identification purposes if you died, or perhaps if you escaped. But it also meant that your life, your very body, belonged to the Germans. An evil government can take your life and even your body, but they cannot take your soul. The worst they can do is kill you, but they cannot affect your eternity. Now, you might not realize this, but our soul bears a mark as well. And if you're saved, you've entrusted your soul to Jesus, and now you are marked for God. And in the reading from the book of Ezekiel today, we're going to read about this. We're going to cover the entirety of chapter 9 today, on the Cross References podcast. And this is a short chapter, but it packs a pretty big punch, and it has many implications for our Christian lives, even concerning the end times. And yes, we are going to talk about the mark of the beast today, but we'll also talk about another mark that carries an even greater significance for your life, the mark of the best. And I believe that every Christian has this mark. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have been sealed with the Spirit. We've been marked by God, set apart in the Spirit for an eternity with him. God puts his mark on you and me when we come to faith. 
And in Ezekiel today, we'll read about how God was doing the same thing thousands of years ago in ancient Israel. Only, in case you need refreshed, God wasn't able to do that very much. There were few believers in those times. While he was away at the city of Tel Aviv, Ezekiel was receiving a vision of what was going on at the temple of God in Jerusalem. And it was disastrous. The citizens of Jerusalem had given up on God. The leadership of Israel, both the political leadership and the priests, were worshiping false gods. They had brought their idolatry right into God's own temple. And God isn't going to take this sitting down. So let's continue with the vision today and see what God was revealing to Ezekiel and also learn what he's revealing for you and I today. Ezekiel 9 verses 1 and 2. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. This is a vision, and in this vision, Ezekiel is in what we might call a spiritual dimension. He's witnessing the things going on in Jerusalem. He's seeing something in the spiritual that everybody else doesn't see. And what he sees are seven angels. And now they're called men, but they're clearly angels. If you're wondering why it doesn't simply say angels, you might notice that there's many times in the Bible that angels appear, and it just calls them men. Like when the, the empty tomb of Jesus was discovered, there was simply a man sitting in there saying, he's not here, he is risen. Well, we know that it was an angel. Or, you know, whenever Jesus ascended to heaven, it said that two men came along and, and they, they asked the disciples, what are y'all waiting around for? He's gone. Well, we know that those men were actually angels. But oftentimes, angels have the appearance of ordinary humans. So the Bible just refers to them as men. In Hebrews, the Bible says, you and I, that we might have met angels before and never even knew it, that they just appear as people. Regular angels, they don't have wings like you see depicted in classical art. Now, the cherubim that we're going to talk about next time in Ezekiel, they have wings, but they do not look like men. So anyway, Ezekiel sees seven men. Six of them are executioners, and then there's one guy who's carrying a writing case, or some translations might put an inkhorn. Um, in modern terms, just think clipboard, okay? That'll give you an idea of what this angel was doing. So six executioner angels come out, and they're carrying swords and weapons, and one comes out with a clipboard. Now, what's he supposed to do? What's he checking on? Well, let's keep reading. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So first, we see the glory of the Lord begin to rise. And the significance of this is going to be the main topic of, of the next chapter, really. So I'm not going to get into it here. But then God calls the clipboard angel forward. And we see right here that the, that the clipboard angel, he's supposed to go throughout all the people and make a distinction. He's supposed to put a mark on the heads of all the men who, as it said, sigh and groan over the abominations around them. So if you remember the temple itself, God's own temple, it had been dedicated to idol worship. The people there were worshiping the sun god, Tammuz, and other idols. So the government leadership of Israel and the religious leadership of Israel, they were all junk. They were all in here themselves worshiping idols. 
things have gotten really bad in Jerusalem. And so anybody who was upset about that, anybody groaning and sighing, they received a mark on the forehead. This was a good mark. It signified that you were one of the good guys that you hadn't been given over to idol worship. So what happens if you don't get a mark? Well, verse 5 of Ezekiel 9, it tells us, And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. So the executioner angels, they begin slaughtering everyone, men, women, and child, in the city of Jerusalem. Now, what is going on here? Are are the people standing around in Jerusalem, are they suddenly just going to start dropping dead, like they were sliced up by some invisible ghost? Well, that's not what happened. This is something happening in the spiritual realm, and later on it's going to have a physical effect. See, in the spiritual, these men have been judged and marked for slaughter. In the natural, they will be literally slain by the Babylonians when they roll in to invade in a couple years. Now, why does it say man, woman, and child, even though many of them would have been too young to have done anything wrong? Well, that's because the effects of our sins, they go beyond ourselves. Those kids are going to be killed by the Babylonians because of the sins of their parents. It doesn't mean that God is sending those kids to hell. Surely they died and went to heaven. They weren't guilty because of their parents, but they did pay a price because of their parents. Just like when a father is a drunk or a drug addict, his family suffers. You know, it doesn't mean God is mad at the kids, but a parent's sins have consequences, and those consequences will affect the whole family. And judgment begins at the sanctuary. It reminds me of... 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18, where it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And something we'll see as we continue is that the righteous is scarcely saved. Meaning, you know, you have your believers and your unbelievers. You have your Christians and the non-Christians. You have the church and the world. But 1 Peter reminds us of something that we see in Ezekiel and also throughout the whole Bible, that even within this group that we call the church, not all of them are saved. There are false converts. There are false teachers. There are false prophets. There are people who say they are Jews and are not. There are those who deceive themselves, and they'll find out on Judgment Day that Jesus says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. So Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Peter tells us in his other book, Make every effort to make your calling and election sure, because not everybody who calls themselves Christian are actually Christian. Now, we can't see that in the physical, but in the spiritual realm, God knows. God's angels can separate the wheat from the chaff, and we're going to get into more of that later on. But God can see into the spiritual who is true to him and who is deceived. So this mark is a spiritual thing. It wouldn't show up physically on anybody's head, but God does know. God keeps track. And by the way, one way you can tell who is true to God and who isn't is by those who groan and sigh over the abominations around them. The people who are upset about the evil that they see in the culture, they are probably more sincere in their faith. The people who are okay with the evil, they're probably people who didn't belong to God in the first place. So this is not all just obvious only in the spiritual. There's physical signs 
of whether someone loves God or not. If you love God, you don't love sin. And if you love sin, you don't love God. Now, we'll get into more of this subject at the end of the program, but let's go ahead and finish up the chapter first. Ezekiel 9, verses 8 through 11 say, And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen, with the writing case at his waist, brought back words, saying, I have done as you commanded me. Now, God repeats some things here that he said in the previous chapter, that the people think they can get away with sin, because they're saying, God doesn't see us, he's left us, God has departed anyway. Now, they were wrong. God is still there. God is still watching them. Now, God's not going to stick around much longer, but, but he's there now. So the people are incorrect when they say that it's okay to act this way because God left them first. That is not what happened. Let's go back to verse 8. <laughs> this was a really short chapter. We're already about done with it. So most of my comments today are really going to come. They're going to be the cross-references, the parts of this passage that connect to other parts of the Bible. But let's go ahead and finish up explaining these verses first. So the most interesting part, I think, was back in verse 8. And that's where Ezekiel makes this comment. Ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Now, this was right after the angel with the clipboard went out and he was going around to mark all the innocent people. And Ezekiel's response to this as he's watching, he says, wow, God, are you going to kill everyone in the city? Now, this implies something to me, that nobody is receiving the mark of innocence. In other words, nobody is getting upset about the abominations that are going on. Nobody has a problem with idol worship anymore. Nobody is standing up and saying, this is wrong. Nobody is so much as sighing over what's going on. So everybody will be destroyed. If anybody was getting the mark of salvation, Ezekiel probably wouldn't be freaking out. But since he is, that tells me that nobody is getting marked. Or maybe that very, 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 very few people are going to be saved. As we read in 1 Peter, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, in ancient times, they were going to be cut down by the, the swords of Babylon, but that's only the beginning of their problems because then they have an eternal hell to worry about. And for the sinner, for those who reject God and love evil, this life is hard, and then it's only going to get worse. Now that covers the chapter, and if you have a question on it, uh, you can leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on what subjects you'd like to see us tackle in the future. The next time on this podcast, we're going to look at the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Now we've looked at the white, the black, the red horses so far. There's only one more horse left to go. So you can read ahead in Revelation 6 if you want to know what's coming, but we, we will explain all that in the upcoming episode. And then uh, I want to go ahead and give a quick recap today and, and some cross-references, personal application of this chapter. Actually, I don't think I really need a recap. 
<laughs> it was only 11 verses. Okay, if you forgot what happened already, <laughs> go back and listen again. But the part I really want to focus on for today, for this cross-references section, I want to focus on how an angel was told to go throughout the city, mark all of the people who groan and sigh, and that these individuals will be set apart and delivered from the destruction that's coming soon to Jerusalem. So that'll basically be where I want to get three applications and cross-references that I want to pull from this. I want to talk about the mark. I want to talk about those who groan and sigh. And I want to talk about the separation. So first, the mark. I mean, did anyone get like Mark of the Beast vibes while we were reading this? Okay, and don't feel bad if you did. The Mark of the Beast is actually the devil's counterfeit or parody of God's mark. You see, Satan doesn't have a lot of original ideas. A lot of the things that Satan does, they are copies of what God does. Okay, for example, the Antichrist in the end times, you know, he's just a replacement, an attempted replacement for the real Christ. He's a parody. And as you probably know, the Antichrist enforces that a mark will be placed on the right hand or the forehead of all the saints. Now, why is this? Well, God seals his saints with a sign on their forehead. And you can't see it in the physical realm, but it is there in the spiritual realm. In Revelation 7:3, an angel flies in. It's while all these judgments are coming down on the earth. And the angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And in, the Bible says that in the tribulation, there are, there's 144,000 saved people who are sealed on their foreheads, and this is going to protect them from some of the judgments that break out on the earth. And as you keep reading about the judgments that happen in Revelation, oftentimes you'll see that the judgments, they don't affect those who are sealed on their foreheads. Like in Revelation 9, 4, it says there, there's these insect-like creatures that come out and they torment the people of the earth. Uh, but it also says this, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So we see that God marks his servants, his saints, and that he sets them apart so that they don't have to feel his wrath. And you can't see the mark in the physical, but in the spiritual, it is there and it has a protective effect. And it doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you in this world. You know, obviously it doesn't mean that, but it does say that you won't feel God's wrath, his judgment on sin. So the devil makes a counterfeit to this in Revelation 13, and it's called the mark of the beast. He says, you know, if you take his mark, and this, this mark is going to be fit, visible in, this, in the physical realm, if you take it, you are openly declaring your allegiance to him. And if you do this, you know, you can buy things, you can live your life, but if you don't take the mark, you aren't allowed to buy and sell. So there's a lot of pressure to take it because, you know, if you don't take it, you can't go to Walmart. You can't fill up your car with gas. You can't go see the new Avengers movie, okay? And I'm, I'm joking a bit there. There might not there might not be movies anymore that far into the tribulation. Um, you know, society might have collapsed too much to, that, the, that Hollywood is still turning its crap out. And I'm also aware that the way gas prices are right now, you already can't afford <laughs> to put gas in your car. Um, but besides all that, Okay, eventually, in the tribulation, you, know, you can't buy anything if you don't have the mark. And they eventually start putting people to death if you refuse to take the mark. So all I'm saying is, there is a lot of pressure. It seems like they give you a lot of good reasons to take the mark of the beast. But God warns super clearly. Couldn't it be more clear? Anyone who takes the mark of the beast, they will go to hell. They doom themselves to hell 
at the end of the tribulation. There is no coming back, no repentance once you take the mark. You are doomed forever. Revelation 13, it talks about this. It says, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. However, Revelation 14, it turns right around and it says this, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, or receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So again, God is super clear about the consequences for taking the mark of the beast. He couldn't be clearer. And that's why it ends with this admonition to endure if you're a saint. Endure, don't take the mark, even if you die, because it's better to lose your head than to lose your soul. So I can't go through this chapter without commenting on the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast, it's a parody of God's mark. God has a similar mark, but it's the mark of the best. And that's what this is in Ezekiel. It's those who are marked by the best, which is God. And sadly, it looks like Ezekiel didn't have any or many people who were qualified for that mark. But that's not really the point. The opportunity was there for anybody to remain committed to God and receive the mark. Even if they didn't take advantage of that opportunity, the opportunity was there. And that brings me to my second point. How did you receive the mark? Now, God has set a really low bar for receiving the mark in these verses. If you ask me, it was a low bar. He said that anybody who groaned and sighed would get it. That's all it took, those who groan and sigh. In the original Hebrew, the words actually rhymed. So it was something more like those who groan and moan or those who sigh and cry. It means people who are disturbed and bothered by all the evil that they see around them. They shake their heads about it. They, they sigh. They roll their eyes. They don't accept it, even if they can't do anything about it. So God sets the bar pretty low. He says that, you know, if you will at least do that much, if you at least do that much, you're good. You know, you still have the light of God's truth inside you. Even that would spare you, is what God is saying. It kind of reminds me of the story of Lot in the land of Sodom. And, and there's evidence that Lot was a bit corrupted by the atmosphere that he chose to live in. Let me explain a little bit. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and they both had a lot of stuff. They decided there was too much stuff, not enough land, so one of them needed to pack up and move away. So Lot decides to move away, and he moves down by Sodom. It was a very wicked and evil town. Uh, the main sin of Sodom that's emphasized in Genesis, it was the rampant homosexuality that was present there. I mean, that's actually why we get the word sodomy today. Uh, Sodom was extremely wicked. Now, Lot was a believer in God, but he made a poor decision to move down to California, I mean, to Sodom, and, and not to evangelize the people there. He just wanted to live alongside them. Not sure why. Now, maybe it was like a beautiful territory or something like that. I don't really know. But he was willing to live down there by that spot. Now, he kind of kept to himself. He was willing to live and let live. But as we read, that wasn't good enough for the people of Sodom. They demanded that Lot and his family, that they endorse and participate in their wickedness. 
tolerance was not enough for the people. They wanted, they wanted acceptance. They wanted celebration. In, in Genesis 19.9, Lot calls their behavior wickedness. And this is how they reply to him. They say, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. In other words, they're saying, you're not a native here. You have no right to judge us. They can't stand to be judged. Now, does this sound familiar to you? So, uh, we'll get into more of that later. But Sodom, it was such a disgustingly evil place that God literally destroys it. Fire and brimstone falling out of the sky. And, and 2 Peter 2, it's a location in the New Testament, but it makes this comment. It says, as that righteous man, it's talking about Lot, as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So the, the New Testament is saying that Lot is a righteous man. And I think he was a bit corrupted by Sodom, but not entirely. He still knew what was right and wrong. He still had some moral sense. And he still tried to follow God's law, despite what everybody else around him was doing. And it said that as, as he saw the wickedness of his neighbors, it tormented his righteous soul. King James Version, it says it vexed his spirit. He was disturbed by it. He wasn't comfortable with it. He wasn't celebrating it. He wasn't endorsing it. But he couldn't do much about it. Now, he wasn't just going to go along with it. He groaned inside over what he saw each day. And I think he probably should have moved, but <laughs> that's another lesson for another day. But it was his own fault that he chose to live there. As, as the verse said, he was tormenting his righteous soul. So he put himself through it. He didn't have to, but he did it anyway. Now, what does this mean for you and me? I think that we should groan and moan over what we see around us. I mean, I think we should do a little bit more than that. I think we should speak up about it. We shouldn't just accept it and go along with it and say times are changing. Uh, but it's like this. In psychology class in college, uh, we learned about a word called desensitization. Now, that's whenever you want to change how someone feels about something. So you change it a little at a time. I mean, literally, desensitization, it means to, to make someone less sensitive. So uh, in the realm of psychology... They use it as a way to, like, treat phobias. Okay, let's say that you have a racehorse, and it's really fast. It's, it's really good at racing, but it's afraid of the gunshot that you fire to start the race. Okay, when this horse hears the gunshot, it jumps back instead of jumping forward. So they, th this is a good horse, but they got to get it over this fear. So what do they do? Well, they might have someone fire a gun from a quarter mile away. And whenever the horse starts to get good with that, they come a little closer, maybe an eighth of a mile away. And then maybe a football field away. And they keep getting closer and closer until that horse is finally comfortable with a gunshot being fired even right next to it. Okay? That's desensitization. And the same thing can happen with people. You know, you can change someone's phobia or their aversion to things by introducing it to them a little bit at a time. Kind of like the proverbial frog in a kettle. You know, if you turn the temperature up a little bit at a time, he doesn't jump out until eventually it gets so hot that he boils alive. Okay, so so let's get back to society. Because as I write this, we are halfway through Pride Month. Now, this episode's going to air in a few weeks from now, but right now when I'm recording it, we're in the midst of Pride Month. And something really disturbing has been going on in society right now. Children, like the littlest of kids, they're being indoctrinated into sexuality by frequent exposure to men dressed as women 
dancing around in provocative clothing, doing sexual dances. They, they have what are called drag queens visiting schools and performing their shows for kids. There's public institutions like libraries that are putting these, these things on. They're call it, they call it drag queen story hour. Kids are being brought to gay pride parades where there's frequent nudity, graphic sexual subjects on display and being talked about. I can't even get into details on this because it's, it's too disturbing. <laughs> I want to keep things a little bit family friendly here. Uh, but there was there was a gay bar in Texas. It recently hosted a drag queen event for kids. They had kids come up on the stage to dance with the drag queens and the, and the adults who were in attendance. They threw money at the kids as if the kids were strippers or something. And talking about little kids here. I don't know how that's even legal. So here's what I'm saying. There's some really debased wickedness that's going on in America right now. And I'm, I'm not just disturbed that there's these evil, depraved individuals who are trying to do this to kids. I'm even more disturbed. I mean, there's always been freaks out there who want to do terrible stuff to kids. Okay, that's always been a thing. I'm more disturbed that there are people who, who take their kids to this and people who just kind of shrug it off as if it's no big deal. Like people who see this stuff being reported in the news. It's not talked about a lot in the news. They want to, you know, uh, they're not really shining a, a bright light on this, but this is going on all, this is in every state, in school systems all over the country, from California to Iowa to, uh, it's, it's everywhere, okay? All over the place. And a lot of people are just shrugging it off. Like it's no big deal. Why are people just ignoring the sexual perversion and indoctrination of little kids that's it's filling our schools, it's being publicly paraded? Stuff goes on today that people wouldn't have been silent about it 10 years ago, but they're being silent about it today. And now why is that? It goes back to that word I gave you before, desensitization. Okay, over the past 20 years, even longer than that, but especially over the past 20 years, our culture has become desensitized to sexual sin. I mean, they started putting gay characters in every TV show. They started changing the laws regarding the definition of marriage. And, and even many churches started performing gay weddings, having transgender pastors. Schools kept lowering the ages that they would teach sexual education. And so whereas we, I don't think we would have let men in leotards come perform at school assemblies 20 years ago, but now it goes on all over the country and there's barely any pushback. Our society has become so desensitized to sin that now kids can be publicly sexualized and groomed and taken on public school field trips to gay bars and somehow that's legal. It's tolerated and it's even celebrated. So count me as one of those who is sighing and crying over all this. And I hope you are too. Because if you don't see what's wrong with this, you have been desensitized and accepting of evil. If you think a gay pride flag has any place in an elementary school classroom, you have become desensitized to sin. And you need to get your kid out of that classroom if you have any sense left. So just this week, I saw a news story. Uh, there is about five baseball players, and therefore a team called the Tampa Rays. And they decided not to wear rainbow flags on their uniforms. There was this recent game and they called it Pride Night. It was the players were all supposed to be supporting gay pride. And five players decided that they didn't want to do that. And they didn't do a counter protest or something. All they did was say, we don't want to wear the rainbow emblems on our uniforms. 
And, and this took some courage, okay? Because everybody on the team was doing it. Everybody else put the rainbow on for Pride Night to show support for gay pride. And, and teams have a lot of pressure to conform because, you know, it's a team. We're all in this together. But yet there were five players and they were brave enough to say no, to say we are not wearing gay pride symbols on our uniforms. Their names were Jason Adam, Jalen Beeks, Brooks Raley, Jeffrey Springs, and Ryan Thompson. It said they were among the players who refused to part participate, according to the Tampa Ray Times. Jason Adam was quoted. He said, as for why they wanted to do this, he said, a lot of it comes down to faith, to like a faith-based decision. So it's a hard decision because ultimately, we all said what we want them to know is that all are welcome and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, talking about the rainbow symbol, when we put it on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that, that maybe, not that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior. Adams reportedly continues, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside of the confines of marriage, it's no different. So he just kind of gave a very, I would say not hateful at all explanation for why he didn't want to support gay pride. He said, well, the Bible says that is behavior we shouldn't engage in. So I shouldn't encourage other people to engage in it. And he even relates it to himself. Just like he says, I as a heterosexual male, that I still have sexual behavior I'm not supposed to engage in. So he says, it's no different. I'm just trying to live by the Bible's sexual rules and not endorse things the Bible calls sin. Very, uh, you know, 10 years ago, this one, it, it might have been controversial, but everyone would have at least understood where he was coming from. Okay, today, this had a huge backlash against the players. Okay, if you Google it, if you Google this situation, there is article after article of people just condemning these players for their decision, for their faith. They're calling them fake Christians. <laughs> They're calling them fake Christians because these players want to actually do what the Bible says. There was this one, uh, this gay guy who was mentioned in several media outlets. His name is Brian Ruby. So he's a baseball player, I think. And, and he told USA Today in response to this, he said, it always baffles me when guys use Jesus as their excuse to discriminate. This isn't about religion. <laughs> so, so notice this gay dude. He is considering himself the arbiter of what is and isn't religion. religious. He's mad at these baseball players because he says they are judging. But he himself, this gay guy, he is judging their faith, judging their motives. Something that he can't have any knowledge of as an outsider. Someone who doesn't live in their head. Okay? Did these baseball players sound judgmental to you? When I read that quote earlier, the one that Jason Adams said, their quote was like, we want them to know that they're welcome, but, but we believe in Jesus, so we follow his rules for ourselves, and we don't want to encourage that behavior that we think is wrong. Okay? So they were just, they weren't being judgmental at all, but that's not good enough for modern society. So they will run a bunch of articles condemning you if you don't explicitly endorse and promote homosexuality. And so back to this guy, Ruby, this is what he also said, what he told USA Today. He said, this is about being a good teammate. When guys go out of their way to make a point of opposing Pride Night, they're sending a clear message that people like me just aren't welcome in baseball. <laughs> so he says, they're going out of their way. Again, all they decided to do was not wear a patch on their uniform, okay? 
<laughs> they aren't doing anything to hurt somebody. They aren't sacrificing a unicorn. They aren't setting rainbows on fire. They're just not wearing a rainbow. That's all they decided to do, just to not wear a rainbow logo. And then Ruby says, it's a reminder that even on the one night, <laughs> the one night's... I, I'm sorry, I can't get through this quote. It's a reminder that even on the one night we get to be proud of ourselves at the ballpark, we are still second-class citizens. <laughs> so, the, the one night guys, the one they get a whole month and several other days throughout the year that are gay pride days. But this guy says, it's the one night, even on the one night we get to be proud of ourselves, we are second-class citizens. He's a second-class citizen because these guys are not going to wear a rainbow patch celebrating him. That makes him a second-class citizen in his head. I mean, can you just imagine the entitlement of this guy? <laughs> that if five people don't wear a rainbow on their baseball in their on their baseball uniform celebrating you for who you want to sleep with, that makes you a second-class citizen to him, a second-class citizen. It's just it's unbelievable entitlement. Unbelievable demanding that other people celebrate you. And yet, is this not the same attitude of what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah? That the men, they knock on Lot's door, they demand that he release some house guests that he has so that they can have sexual relations with them. Okay, unbelievable entitlement right there. And then whenever Lot refuses, and when Lot calls it wicked, the men of Sodom say, who are you to judge us? Now, I'm not saying America is as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, but we are we are already closer than I ever thought we'd be. The LGBT crowd, they are demanding that you celebrate them. It's not enough to just tolerate them anymore. Remember 10 or 15 years ago when they were asking for tolerance and a bunch of cowardly Christians gave in? You know, tolerance was not enough. It was never going to be enough. They want your undying devotion. They want you to celebrate their sexual lifestyle. They want to sexualize your kids while you clap for it and cheer them on. And Christians should not endorse or tolerate sin. We should call it out. And we should sigh and cry over what's happening around us, especially to our kids. Kids who can't know any better. Kids who are too young to stand up to the lies of, of modern gender theory and homosexual indoctrination. We should be throwing a fit about that, not ignoring it, not capitulating to it. If nothing else, it should make you sigh and moan. Because at least that is a mark, that's a sign that God's truth still lives somewhere inside you. The last area that I want to draw some attention to on this is uh, this matter of separation. God makes clear throughout the Bible that he has ways of separating the righteous from the wicked. So when judgment falls, it always falls on those who deserve it, not on everybody. Um, Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's called the parable of the net. And, and there's actually several parables that are similar to this, um, like the parable of the wheat and the chaff. 
That one's a little bit longer, but the same idea is there. That basically what it's teaching is that the church, it has a lot of people who claim to be a part of it, but as we mentioned, some are false believers. So these false believers, do, do they just kind of slip into heaven with the rest of us? <laughs> like, like, can they just be grandfathered in? No. Even if they survived until Jesus came back, his angels will separate the true believers from the false. Is it our job to separate the true and false? Not necessarily. You're, you're, you know, your pastor, he might have to make some determinations about that whenever he's picking leaders. But for the most part, you don't have to stress about or judge your neighbor's salvation because that's going to be God's job at the end of time. Nobody's sneaking into heaven. It's the angels who will separate the good and the bad. I really like this paragraph in 2 Peter 2. I'm going to read it all here. We actually read a verse from it earlier, but I'm going to read the whole th- the whole paragraph here. And as I read it, I want you to notice the use of the word if, okay? God is going to list an ancient example of evil, and then he notes that he was able to separate the good from the bad during that time. So 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Okay, so that paragraph right there, it made three points. It said God judged the evil angels, but he kept the good ones. God judged the ancient world whenever he flooded it, but God protected Noah. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered Lot out of it first. So we see that as God judges individuals and cities and even the entire world, the first thing he does is separate the righteous people out first. Now notice those three categories we gave on a personal basis, on a city basis, and on a worldwide basis. God can deliver the righteous before judgment falls. Why? Well, because judgment, whenever I use that term judgment, judgment is the wrath of God on sin. And if you're a believer, a Christian, then Jesus already took God's wrath for you. So you don't have to do it again. I feel like the ultimate example of this, and and what 2 Peter is getting at, is talking about the rapture. The doctrine that God will take the church out of the world before the seven-year tribulation period begins. Now, I know a lot of Christians, um, they don't really believe in the rapture. Well, I, I would say this, all Christians believe in the rapture, but... The disagreement is on when it's going to happen, okay? So so we all believe in a rapture. It's just about when it's going to be, whether that's at the end of the tribulation, which that doesn't make logical sense to me because it's a common view. It might be the most common view if you look at all Christians around the world. They think Jesus would pull everybody out at the end of, of the tribulation period, right before he comes back. That We just go up and then immediately turn around in heaven and come back down. That's a very common view. doesn't make sense to me, but... Anyway, that's what a lot of people believe, or a lot of them also believe it's going to be at the halfway point of the seven years. 
They call that a mid-trib view. Uh, but I'm someone who thinks the rapture will happen right at the beginning, okay? A pre-tribulation view of the rapture. That's the only one that really makes sense to me. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it describes the rapture. And then the next chapter, chapter 5, it says in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Okay? In the tribulation period, that is God's wrath. But we are not appointed to it. So God must do something to get us out before it falls. Now, I know that God can let his wrath fall strategically. We saw it in Exodus when the death angel visited Egypt. You know, you had the blood of lamb over your doorpost, and that meant you were spared. And that's how God could mark you safe from his own punishments and only strike those who refuse his deliverance. That's how salvation works. And that's how the rapture works, okay? Um, talking about the plagues right there. I was listening to a podcast a few years ago, and it was, it was speaking against the pre-tribulation rapture view. And it was saying God doesn't need the rapture because whenever he pours his wrath out on the world, in, like in Revelation, they said God can do like he did in Egypt during the ten plagues. And if you read Exodus carefully, you'll notice sometimes the plagues, they only fell on the Egyptians and on the Egyptian, Egyptian property, but mysteriously, it did not fall on the Israelites. So this podcaster was making the point that God could do the same thing in the tribulation that he did to Egypt, that he could leave us in the world and that we just won't be affected by the tribulation. So this podcaster was speaking against the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, listen, I acknowledge God is capable of doing whatever he wants. God is able to deliver us out of the tribulation or deliver us through it. You know, however God wants to do it, he can. But look at the examples that Peter gives us for the end times. Noah and Lot. Examples where God delivered people out of judgment. He got them out of the way before judgment fell. He got Lot out of Sodom before destroying it. He brought Noah up above the waters of judgment. And Jesus said in the last days, it will be as in the days of Noah and as in the days of Lot. He didn't say it'd be as in the days of Moses. So I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And this is one of the reasons why, because God gets his people out of the way before his wrath falls. So if you read Revelation, God's wrath is falling on the whole world in that book. There's earthquakes that shake every mountain, every island. The whole planet is given over to the Antichrist. There's not like a safe zone for believers to hang out at for seven years. So if God is going to deliver his people from the tribulation, he has to literally get us off the planet. <laughs> and um, that, I, you know, I'm about to close down here. In case you haven't heard, maybe you've heard in the background that the yard mowing crew is, has showed up. And uh, so <laughs> my hat's off to them because it is a hot day out there. You might have heard, besides just the lawnmowers, you might have heard the air conditioner running a lot as we got through this program. And I, I appreciate you sticking with us here until we get to the end. So I'm going to close down here with one last note on this chapter, a literal cross-reference that I want to tell you about. It's the mark on the forehead that would clear you as safe from the destroying angels. So this mark, talked about in Revelation, this mark is actually the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I'm going to explain why that's significant. You know, if you look at the modern Hebrew, you wouldn't see this, but the modern Hebrew, it's kind of, you would see in the modern, what you're familiar with probably seeing a lot is that blocky writing that Hebrew is in. But in ancient times, Hebrew looked a lot differently, like radically differently. And the letters were actually symbols or pictures, um, 
uh, a lot of the different lettering in Hebrew is just different pictures. You can Google this if you want to see what they looked like. But the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet that was used as the mark on the forehead in Ezekiel 9, it was a cross. So when the angel was going around with a clipboard and he was checking all the people, looking for those who would be saved, he was actually instructed to put a cross on the forehead of anybody who groaned inside. And this cross, it would protect them from God's wrath. And 600 years later in that same city, God gave another cross to protect man from God's wrath. It's the cross that Jesus was sacrificed on. And that's one more way that we can know that God is always gonna be able to spare the righteous from his judgment, because he already has. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor, reminding you that Christians do not celebrate sins.